0: This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to 1 Kings 18. If you have a, a smartphone or a tablet and you uh, do it that way, go for it. First Kings 18. Let me try to set up the context for where we're at in our journey through the scriptures. In the beginning, God created everything And everything was exactly the way he wanted it to be. And it was Adam and Eve's God given mission and their descendants' mission to proliferate these conditions found in Eden. That is, God wanted the conditions in Eden as he had designed them to be, to be characteristic of the entire world, for human beings to multiply. To expand the borders of Eden, to walk with God in obedience to him, to unlock creation's untapped potential through their innovative efforts. In other words, it was supposed to be heaven on earth. But when Adam and Eve questioned the details of God's word, doubted his goodness and took matters into their own hands, their lives and your life fell apart at that moment. But God's vision and God's mission is not, has not been detoured. He wants to see a populous people living in His perfect presence, uh, walking with Him in faithful obedience, and all of that still stands today. So, in the Old Testament storyline, the promised land would become the new Eden. But so far, we have seen the terrible inadequacy of human leadership to facilitate God's vision for humanity. The book of Judges, for example, contains a downward cycle of moral and spiritual degradation. At the end of that book, the people call for a king, and the the period of time spanning hundreds of years, which encapsulated the era of the kings, is reminiscent of the Judges' period, more downward spiral. Well, in the run-up to Elijah, We have seen king come and go, most of them bad, only a few good. And one of those bad kings is Ahab, a spineless wimp, uh, but someone who was kind of a worshiper of God in so far as he gave his kids names like Ahaziah, which means owned by Yahweh, and Jehoram, which means Yahweh is exalted. But the big knock against Ahab is his decision to marry the wicked witch of the West, Jezebel, who is a faithful worshiper of Baal, henceforth, I'll just pronounce it as Baal because Baal is annoying after a while. <laughs> she is a faithful worshiper of Baal and she had lots of God's prophets killed and she wanted to make Baal worship the official state religion. But Ahab's not doing anything about it. She's running amok here. So God raises up a prophet, Elijah, which literally means the Lord is God. And his mission is simple but difficult, to show Israel how Yahweh is so distinctive from the other gods. That's his mission. And so there's an epic battle that occurs on the top of Mount Carmel, What I want to do is just walk through the story, and we'll make some observations about it. So 1 Kings 18, we're going to pick it up in verse 17. When he, Ahab, saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? This word troubler means pestilence, plague, one who wreaks havoc. He's saying, There you are, you plague, you pimple you canker sore. Fantastic greeting. Verse 18, Elijah speaks up. I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and you follow the Baals. Now, Elijah's quick to reverse the accusation. And notice the criteria Elijah uses in determining Ahab is the true true canker sore. What's the criteria? You have abandoned the Lord's commands. And you've followed the bales. You've fallen into idolatry. What's interesting to notice about this is the infiltrating influence of leadership. One single man, a king, has made trouble for an entire nation because of his idolatry. As the leader goes, so goes the people he or she leads. But what trouble are they talking about? this repetition of trouble. What what is this trouble that they're talking about? Well, in response to Ahab's idolatry, God had withheld both rain and dew from the land, and so Israel was experiencing a devastating drought. This teaches us something we see in other places in Scripture, and that's this. Sometimes suffering is tied directly to personal sin. Sometimes suffering is tied tied directly to personal sin so for example in John 5 Jesus heals a paralytic and then exhorts him saying stop sinning or something worse may happen to you explicitly ties the man's suffering to his sin first Corinthians 11 the apostle Paul tells the church in Corinth that some of those in this church have become sick and weak and even died because they participated in the Lord's supper in an unworthy manner Sometimes suffering is due to personal sin. Now, this isn't always the case. We have the infamous story of Job, for example, that shows us sometimes suffering is not due to personal sin. And so we ought never to conclude that just because someone is suffering means they've committed some evil. That's the mistake Job's friends made. They automatically assume that Job was suffering because of some personal sin. But what does God have to say about Job's miserable comforters? At the end of the book, God declares that he's angry with them because they have not spoken the truth about him. And so rather than concluding definitively about the cause of some suffering in some person or people's life, we need to acknowledge our incomplete understanding of all things. But why would God allow this? That still remains the question. Why would God allow suffering in a believer's life? I think the best answer is given to us in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate true sons and daughters at all. So why does God allow suffering in a believer's life? I think one of the answers is given to us very clearly here, and that is that we may share in his holiness. And so in this life, Christian, in this life, God has a greater concern for you than your happiness. We're being told that God is willing to eliminate some happiness in your life in order that you may grow in holiness. So Elijah spins the accusation around and charges Ahab with bringing upon Israel this devastating drought. Elijah continues verse 19, Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Okay, so picture this. Imagine being there. It's a showdown, it's a contest, it's it's a battle. And Elijah is outnumbered 850 to one. <laughs> 850 to one. If the press was there, the polling data would have shown God's plummeting approval ratings. But one of the lessons that this is teaching us is that God's power is never, ever determined by how many cheerleaders he has. Popularity is no indicator of reality. Popularity is no indicator of truth. Popularity is no indicator of rightness. It would have been easy for Elijah to make the popular decision. Go with the 850. It's not worth it to take them on by yourself. But one of the qualities of a God follower is that she has the courage to make the hard decision. You know this. Sometimes, oftentimes, Easy decisions are the wrong decisions. The hard ones are often the right ones. But what makes them hard is that they're unpopular. Elijah is living this. Verse 20, So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel, Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? Literally, he's saying, how long are you going to keep on limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Now, why is Baal so alluring? Why is Baal so alluring? Why is Israel drawn to this idol? Well, Baal was the storm and fertility god, In agrarian society, rain meant everything. Rain meant prosperity. In agrarian society, children, offspring, meant prosperity and social standing. While we may not understand the attraction to Baal, we certainly can understand the attraction to prosperity, wealth, social standing. And so contextualize, Elijah's call to make a decision might sound like this. If money is your God, then serve it with all your heart. Get all you can you have to cheat or sacrifice your family, then do it. If the approval of people is your God, then please them. Sell out. Do whatever you have to earn to earn their do whatever you have to do to earn their approval. Do whatever you have to do to avoid their, their rejection. Is that your God? Then go all out for it. If romance is your God, then, then go anywhere to find it. Leave your marriage if you must. If you f- just feel like getting divorced, then do it. It's not worth living for God if you have to stay in a bad marriage. If sex is your God, serve it. Make all your fantasies come true. Give yourself away to whomever you want. You think that'll make you happy? Well, why not try the full spectrum of sexuality? Go for it. But if Christ is your God, then serve him. Go all out for him. How long will you go on limping between two opinions? See, most Christians, I think most Christians, are trying to be a little bit in the world and a little bit into God. They're enough into the world to be miserable in God, and they're enough into God to be miserable in the world. And Elijah's call is, pick one. Make a decision. Stop limping between two opinions. Go all out for it. Go bigger. go home. Matt Chandler humorously talks about this. And he talks about it in the context of trying to demonstrate to people how terrible church is as a hobby. He says, think about it. You have to get up each Sunday morning. You got to come to a crowded place where you park and you walk into an auditorium. You sit in a big room filled with people, many of whom you don't know all that well. And they're always pressuring you to volunteer to give your money away, making you feel guilty, then some guy comes up and he yells at you for 30 minutes. (laughs) That's a horrible hobby. What a waste of a perfectly good weekend. How long will you go on limping between two opinions? Go big or go home with Jesus. Verse 22, then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves, and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. "'Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire.' So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. "'Baal, answer us,' they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. "'Shout louder,' he said. "'Surely he is a God.' Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, literally, or he's relieving himself, or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. The author of this book is deliberately setting up a contrast between the frenetic activity of the Baal prophets and Elijah. The, the, The prophets of Baal graphically show us two characteristics of a false god. It's very interesting. Two characteristics of a false god. The first is a false god will require strenuous dancing to please them. They call on Baal from morning till noon. Four hours is a conservative estimate. And since there was no answer by noon, they begin dancing. And then Elijah begins his trash talking. And so they shout louder, more activity, more dancing, get livelier, work harder. A false God requires a frenetic pace and strenuous dancing. Now, let me ask you a question. When you look at your life, do you see a frenetic pace? or strenuous dancing. And if you do, what is it for? In order to get into the right school, you have to strenuously dance. In order to get the right job, you have to strenuously dance. In order to get the right amount of money, you have to strenuously dance. In order to be beautiful, you have to Zumba strenuously. <laughs> you strenuously dance for your circle of friends so they'll like you. False gods require strenuous dancing to please them. Second characteristic of a false god is that false gods push you towards destruction. Destruction. False gods push you towards destruction. False gods possess an insatiable appetite. They push for more constantly. And in their service of the idol Baal, his followers begin literally slashing themselves. Our slashing is more metaphorical. When career is our God, when career is our Baal, We slash our time with our kids. We slash our time with our spouse. We slash our bodies by overworking and not getting enough rest. To obtain that perfect figure, we slash our bodies through crash diets or obsessive workouts. When politics is our God, we slash people on the other side of the aisle. In fact, we slash... Anyone who doesn't value our God as much as we do. One sign you're serving a false God. One sign you're serving a God other than the true God is that you're slashing people. Two characteristics of a false God. They require strenuous dancing to please them, and they push you towards destruction. Now notice Elijah's posture in contrast. Verse 30, then Elijah said, All the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes, descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two say as a seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel And that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God. And that you're turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. You see the contrast between the prophets of Baal and Elijah. Elijah's activity isn't frenetic. He doesn't dance strenuously. He doesn't mount a crescendo of shouting. He doesn't slash himself. Do you see the difference between believing in the right God versus believing in the wrong God? Do you see what believing in the wrong God will do to you? Do you see what impact idolatry will have in your daily life? I want to pause here for a moment and just draw your attention to something. I wonder, I wonder if we in the West are drifting towards a form of Christian Baalism, a subtle syncretism, You notice the assumption by which the Baal prophets operate? The assumption is God will begin to do these things if only we get a flurry of passionate religious activity going. You see that built into their thinking? God, how they've defined him, God will will begin to do some great things if only we can get a flurry of passionate religious activity going. And I wonder if we in the West believe that our God will surely work if only we Spend longer in personal devotions or more time in private prayer. Belong to a Bible study group or form a peer accountability group or get more people involved in the evangelism program. Attend weekend marriage enrichment seminars or hold singles events. Start neighborhood clubs for kids or early mornings pre- uh, men's prayer breakfast. Provide mother's morning out. Hold more missions conferences. Increase missions giving. Add a couple of Bible conferences to the calendar. Get someone to direct the fifth and sixth grade choir. Become involved in a parachurch ministry at a local college, or take the youth on a ski trip to Colorado, or get a church bus ministry off the ground and spearhead the start of a Christian school. All this Christian busyness is as exhausting as Baal worship. Now, most of these are good, in the right setting, legitimate activities, Spending more time in Bible study, expanding missions, I'm all in on that. But I question whether there might be an illegitimate rationale driving it. If only we, then God will. If only we get a flurry of passionate religious activity going and then God will work in amazing ways. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like manipulation tactics designed to stir up God. When's the last time you were manipulated? You enjoy that experience? You look forward to the next time someone will try to manipulate you? How does God think about that? None of this sounds like Elijah. None of it. So if you ever find yourself in a state of panic, if you find yourself in a state of frenetic activity, if hysteria, horror, alarm, or frenzy characterize your life at some point, if any of that's happening in your life, I'll tell you why it's happening. Because in that moment, you're serving a God other than the God of the Bible. When you're truly serving the God of the Bible, there'll be a sense of peace and rest that will enter your life. Verse 39, when all the people saw this remarkable feat, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. This contest, this showdown with the altar, was not about showmanship for Elijah. Listen to verse 37. Elijah's praying that God does this thing with the altar and the rocks and the water and and, and all of this. He's praying that God would do this. So, these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. This is the language of repentance. So, what was the deal with the water? Why why is Elijah stacking the deck against God? That's what he's doing. He's stacking the deck against God. Why is he he doing this by dumping all this water on the sacrifice? What's going on here? Well, if this is not about showmanship, if this is ultimately about repentance, then we're being shown the miracle repentance is. Repenting from sin and turning wholeheartedly to God is not something you can persuade someone else to do. Make no mistake about it. It is God who performs the miracle. Someone turning in repentance to God is every bit the miracle of setting a water-drenched altar on fire. All of this is a God thing. Verse 40, Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Now, the slaughter at Kishon is not an act of personal revenge, but of capital punishment in line with Deuteronomy 13. Those who woo Israel to worship another god forfeit their lives. Keep in mind, at this time, Israel was a theocracy. What we call church and state functioned as one. And Elijah is carrying out Israel's constitution. Now, even if you throw that out there, I know modern people are gonna bristle against this verse. And insofar as it does, let me tell you what happens. It condemns us. It condemns us. In the spring of 1945, uh, Russian troops were overrunning Berlin and mixed in the Red Army were Russian peasants unfamiliar with the amenities of modern life. So for Russian peasants, bathroom plumbing absolutely mystified them. And so what they were doing is sometimes you would see these Russian peasants who, who were now kind of inhabiting Berlin, they were using toilets to wash and peel potatoes, And since they didn't know what bathrooms were for and they couldn't locate outhouses, they left excrement and urine everywhere. A Russian peasant soldier may stare at a German toilet, but he just didn't get it. That's how Christians often read verse 40. We read it and we go into moral hysterics. We simply don't get it. The problem is not with Elijah. Elijah the problem is not with the Old Testament. The problem is with us. We react the way we do because in our subliminal view, walking away from God and into idolatry is just not that big a deal. We simply don't understand God's violence against rebellion in his people. Dale Ralph Davis says of this passage, God uses Surgery, not breath mints on cancer. The problem is not with God's lack of refinement, the problem is with our lack of sanctification. If our thinking was just like God's, we would understand a text like this. Jesus wasn't any different. Jesus was not different. Do you know Jesus made some very disturbing statements during his life and ministry here? He made some disturbing demands. Let me read a few for you. Here's what Jesus said. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. John 8, Jesus said, if, if you hold my teaching, then you're really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Mark 12, the most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Matthew 6, Jesus says no one can serve two masters. Either you will serve, you will hate the one and love the other. You would devote it to, to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Matthew 5, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is issuing a challenge. How long will you go on limping between two opinions? Pick one and go for it. One last observation. The people witnessed a miracle on the altar before they repented. The people witnessed a miracle on the altar before they repented. The sacrifice preceded sold-out devotion. This is the order of the gospel. See, the gospel is, I'm accepted by God on the basis of Christ's sacrifice. Therefore, I obey. That's the order of the gospel. All these demands that Jesus issued are not there so that you can compile a moral resume that will get him to accept you one day. All these demands that Jesus issued aren't there to remind you how far far you fall short and need his grace and forgiveness. That's not it either. The demands that Jesus issued are there to show you the reality his death, resurrection, and spirit can bring about in your life. Jesus died, rose again, and gave you his spirit so that you'll love him more than you love your parents or your children. Jesus died, rose again, and gave you his spirit so that you will faithfully hold to his teaching in spite of its unpopularity. Jesus died, rose again, and gave you his spirit so that you'll live a life of self-denial. He died, rose again, and gave you his spirit so that you'll love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He died, he rose again, he gave you his spirit so that you'll be slow to anger and quick to forgive. He died, he rose again, he gave you his spirit so that you'll look upon other human beings with dignity and true biblical love. Jesus died, rose again, and gave you his spirit to make his demands a living reality in your life. The sacrifice precedes sold out devotion. The sacrifice creates the conditions needed for sold out devotion to become a living reality. How long will you go on limping between two opinions? Go big or go home. Let's pray. God, you created human beings to reflect your goodness and greatness. You created us to be a community of people who love you with heart, soul, mind, and strength and who love others as we would want to be loved. Throughout your word, we have these stories that remind us of our proneness to wander. We are susceptible to infidelity. We are vulnerable to idolatry giving you lip service on Sunday, but walking out the door and giving our best to the gods of career, money, approval, sex, and romance. You're calling us back to yourself. You're calling us back to sold out, all in devotion to you. And in the work of Christ, we see your commitment to bringing us back to this loyalty to you. Help us get serious about this. You sacrificed your only son for it. pray that you'd help us to stop limping between two opinions and turn with decisiveness to you, the living God. We pray these things so we can make a big deal of Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.